We're back with another edition of China Talk Watches Random Chinese Television Shows. Uh, here with uh, China Talk editor Irene Zhang, as well as this week's special guest, Ben Smith of Semaphore. Uh, whose recent book is Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Um, we picked a few sort of like journalism adjacent Chinese shows um, to, to somewhat stay on this theme. But um, we're going to be starting with Cop Show. It's called Jing Cha Rong Yu. It came out in 2022. It's got an 8.5 on Doban. English name is Ordinary Greatness. Ben, first off, welcome to China Talk. This is fun. Yeah, Jordan, Irene, thank you so much for having me on. I am a big fan of the show and an honor to participate. Uh, how'd you like your first look into a, a local Chinese um, police station? I mean, I was, I, I was, I'm sort of obsessed with the, the show. I mean, I watched what, like a couple episodes, so I'm, I'm totally clueless about all sorts of elements of context. But it was also such a totally familiar, um, kind of you know, police station drama. Brooklyn Nine Nine probably being the best known. You know, with a handful of colorful characters, and yeah, I mean, so in many ways, totally, totally familiar it is a genre, and then in other ways, totally unfamiliar to me as a consumer of the American versions of this. Irene, what were your what were your first impressions? Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I find it um pretty funny, and then I really like their portrayal of the family backgrounds of the various characters because. It's something that, like, at least to my sort of very indirect knowledge, affects quite a bit of like work dynamics inside those kind of state control sectors. So that was really interesting for to see them kind of quite quite earnestly portray that rather than kind of skirting around it. So I should do explain this, but so basically, this the the um pilot involves them having four new hires who come to the PlayStation. It's like a random like small city police station so it's like it's struggling with staffing and whatnot and then you have you had i think one person who's from like beta like freaking university so he's automatically average like whoa he's a phd and then you have one person whose dad actually was a former police officer at a station who died on call so she is now like they're like protecting her like a pet and then there were two other guys who kind of have more random backgrounds so it was really interesting to see them actually pick up on that and then like show that like that kind of like fat almost like family legacy in chinese post like the work culture exists so that was interesting to look at it was sort of aimed at, i mean it, it reminded me of what like brooklyn 99 did just because they took the kind of workplace drama like the office and pulled it into a police station and kind of melded it with these traditional very very formulaic police procedurals where it begins with a crime, and you and it ends with solving the crime each episode. Um, but but you know, it's I just happen to have I don't know what this says about me, but have listened to a Malcolm Gladwell speech about about American police um, fiction just before I watched this. And Gladwell's whole thesis is that there's these various kinds of police fiction, but all of them are tearing at the fabric of American society because. They're all fundamentally about the inner story of the police officer and the way in which crime transforms the hero and about the hero's arc. And none of them are about the social legitimacy of the police station. And so it was kind of hilariously on the nose to me that the core drama of this, um, of this thing is that like the police station only has a 91% social approval rating and 
is ranked too low and the the you know precinct leader is going to lose his job if he doesn't get it up to 94 percent and it was sort of like wow malcolm gladwell just like teed me up perfectly for chinese propaganda um but it unbeknownst to him but it was interesting just that that was the core drama right that that was the core conflict even with this very classic office drama where as you say there are these people from different social backgrounds who have conflicts i was as an outsider kind of surprised as you say irene about how frank they were about this is a rich kid you know this is a sort of elite rich kid this guy's kind of a fuck up this one is the the you know this one is protected by the her fellow police officers because she's part of their kind of clan like that all felt like it's like okay that like does seem pretty realistic um but the fact that the that the core conflict wasn't, as it always is in American police dramas, the transformation of the cop by the crime, and instead was this sort of very direct kind of like the efficiency of the and, and service of the police station is in fact like clearly the goal which this you know is the core drama of the season it was pretty weird and interesting to me. So I read my first Elmore Leonard book. A few weeks ago, um, I started with Freaky Deaky, of all things, and like, yeah, exactly. It's like about how this whole system is messed up and dark and there's shades of gray and like everyone is kind of a bit of a psychopath on both sides of the law. And uh, in this show, you know, the bad guys are like bad. Um, and sometimes, you know, they were in bad circumstances, maybe that led them to do the bad thing. But like, no, they should all go to jail and be punished for their crimes. And like the cops are staying, you know, many degrees away from sort of, uh, uh, you know, sketchy things that you can do to like, you know, get get witnesses to, um, uh, um, uh, you know, hand over evidence or, or turn on their friends or whatever, you know, these are relatively clean operators here. And um, that is just, I mean, you know, it's interesting, because I do think like, you know, most American cop dramas are not the wire, right? Um, they, I do think, you know, the, the, the dominant like CBS narrative of like FBI officers and, and SVU or whatever are, are still like good guys putting bad guys in jail. So I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I totally buy into the, um, uh, well, but the it's the thing. human drama of the cop, yeah. like, you know, Gladwell, the Gladwell thing is like way too complicated and annoying for me to try to explain here. There are four different Trent out there are four different, there's a typology, but, but I think the core thing that is that. There is never an American police show drama that's about, wow, black people really don't trust this precinct. How are we going to fix that? Which actually yeah, is the core um, drama of American part policing. Of it feels sure. like it's also like a public narrative thing in that Chinese public culture doesn't have that kind of relationship with cop worship. And so, I mean, obviously, there's obviously a lot of sort of propaganda and like, um, portrayal of the police as I protected the people but that's done in a very collective mm -hmm. way and you're, you don't have this sense of like cops as individual heroes who you know make these complicated moral choices it's more just about like the cop as a collective subject that protects you from hmm. not like from the abstract evil yeah as a total outsider that was that was really interesting also it was interesting that the subplot was sort of fantastical child trafficking fears right and that that the that, that one that this you know kind of gung-ho young cop arrests an innocent woman who he thinks is stealing a baby 
And maybe that's because it's a real problem. They don't seem to treat that as a totally insane thing to do. Just didn't turn out that way. But I wasn't sure. Is like, is that a big problem, stealing babies? Because here it is like not such such a such a major problem, but is currently like real. It's all, I mean, it's obviously something you can make movies about. And oh, yeah, right like now a, it's, it's like having a real moment in American culture. No, totally. I mean, not to say it's not a problem. Bad, <laughs> terrible thing to do. Please do not do yeah, that. Yeah, it's just a it's just a sort of ma- massive kind of uh, societal concern in China. Like it's it's a really big problem in and a big part of public consciousness in terms of like crimes against children. Um, you have a lot of trafficking of women and young girls, especially in less privileged areas. And so, I mean, like for myself, even like growing up, uh, like you, you're like your parents talk to you about. Uh, being grabbed by strangers in the train station so it's just like a the sort of like big big crime that people are afraid of um so yeah i think that that's something that like doesn't feel fantastical to a chinese audience at all really yeah i mean this is like like developed versus developing country thing like there are there's there's like higher roi on stealing other things besides human beings in america um, which is just not the case in large parts of China, which is tragic. But like, you know, there are often, you know, this is a big fear of like being trafficked into like Myanmar or Thailand and like Cambodia, like becoming a sex slave. Um, the kid stuff is a little different. Um, what is the, what is the motivation for like taking a two-year-old? I don't, I don't, under, I mean, I, I, you see articles about it. I know what happens, but like, how do you, how do you make money off of that? Like someone just wants to adopt a kid and you're selling adoptions basically, right? Yeah, pretty much, especially with um boys. So back in the day, like I mean, even to, a bit to this day, like if folks, if like especially in rural families, like you want boys and they can't produce one organically, like they go through that those means. And then girls, it's sometimes like some families just want like an extra pair of hands. Um, others, it's because like they want to buy a essentially a child bride. So, uh, yeah, it's real then. Right, right. And in fact, one of the another thing that that was sort of striking, because it did feel very like any paramilitary organization, the fact that this girl's father had been killed in the line of duty meant that his brothers were totally, totally loyal and protective to her. Like that feels like just a global military sort of, you know, cultural thing. Um, But also, you know, I mean, in American dramas, people are just getting shot at all the time. There are just guns everywhere. The sort of you're dodging bullets constantly. People are dying in every episode. And it was, and, and it did feel like it, in a sense, it was, I mean, actually, you know, again, exaggerated. American, you know, it is horrible and American cops are shot every year, but it's, but most cops, you know, go through their careers. Um, but it did feel like it almost in that Chinese context, having a cop shot by a um, suspect was a much, it was something more horrifying, more rare in the way they were talking about it. What 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 I what I always find striking in Chinese, uh, you know, in Chinese police dramas is that like the guns that the that the that the um, uh, criminals have, they're not like normal Glocks or like contemporary firearms. They're like these like you know glued together like shotguns from like the Korean War or something. Um, just because, and I think this is like actually the case is like the Chinese state has done a pretty good job of making sure there aren't. Um, uh, you know, there aren't weapons just like floating around society. So there's, you know, the, the, the types of like violence and like, you know, the, the killing sprees that happen on the rare occasions they do in China are, are almost often knives, not, um, uh, uh, not, uh, not 
guns, um, which yeah, sort of changed. Yeah. I mean, a question, a question for you guys that I just is a scene I didn't, I just couldn't, I didn't recognize from the genre in the English was like at the end after the cop has screwed up and he sort of has to like get the family to chill out and not file a complaint. Like he's trying to calm down this the family of this woman he's falsely accused. And he and it like he's clearly feeling some urgency about them leaving and, and you know, giving him a good customer service rating or something. And I couldn't tell if that was like total nonsense and cops in China care as little as they care in the Philadelphia Police Department about whether you leave, you know, and press the little smiley face button on the way out. Um or not. But that was like a weird, I didn't like totally know what to make of that scene. Like, what did you guys make of it? So on my end, I think it's more just the way like sort of PlayStation is after in Chinese society. So that the after translation is Pai Shu rather than like Jing Chaju, which would be like police station. Like Pai Shu Su is like office station in a way. And so there, there's this weird sense where like Pai Shu Su, like these kind of police stations perform almost social work duty. So you hear, you hear about like folks who are like in have a fight or like have um some various minor disputes going there after they like like people like they sometimes people get taken there if they like um have some have a fist fight after they got drunk so it's the kind of thing where um yeah it's especially when they're in sort of smaller areas or just kind of places where there's sort of tighter like real life community it it can be a bit like that in that they um are just more entangled into the lives of regular residents. I want to come back to the idea of uh, just like humanizing and making like a comedy work drama out of uh, uh, out of like one slice of the public sector. I've now seen this. Um, like every branch of the armed forces has also done this. Um, so there's like there's like like PLA, PLN, Rocket Force. You know, I've watched like one or two episodes of them because they're all bad. But yeah, it's the same sort of dynamic of like you have four or five young protagonists who are like enlistees or like it's their first week as an officer or whatever. And they're just like cracking jokes and messing up and like having hijinks and and what have you. And it, it is it, 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 it's interesting because like the Chinese um, sort of uh, international narrative, at least, is like not of like the friendly smiley jokey ones but you see like these pla videos that are sort of like very scary and everyone's like marching in lockstep on a parade or or what have you and that i think is like the international um image um at least in propaganda that like the chinese state wants to show of its of its public service and military but i think in china like there's an aspect of like yeah there's like some like uh, maybe like 20 percent of like weird toxic masculinity stuff uh, but there's also this like we're like jokey fun relatable piece um and like maybe you should want to you know check us out and come work here one day um and i think that i think that's a the really interesting dynamic of of uh of these places trying to, you know, clearly spending lots of money to like produce whole television shows to try to make them uh, seem more approachable than um, than maybe like if you only were at, yeah. How 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 top down is the production and things like that? Like, I mean, like with Barbie, like the Mattel Corporation decided they wanted a Barbie movie and and assembled it from pieces. Like, is is the PLA doing that? Or is a studio pitching the PLA or like what's sort of just literally the 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 kind of structure of the production of this of that sort of stuff? Uh, it's just I remember like there were articles talking about how it was like a co-production and also that like the P I don't know. I actually don't know whether this is a thing in like the U.S. military, but like Chinese 
armed forces, air force, and navy have their own cultural troops. So they have folks who are well versed in the arts and production. So they technically can produce stuff themselves. Them. Yeah, and you know they're like lending out the 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 jets and the tanks or whatever. I mean these are these are very much. I don't think I don't think um. Uh, I also think like the like the ROI on this stuff doesn't seem to be great. I mean, just like looking at m most of these are like enormous flops that no one watches. Um, and they kind of have to like bully the stars into doing the shows in the first place um, to like, you know, give them leeway when they want to do things which are fun and not, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a sort of pretty bland propaganda. I mean, I think this show is different um, in that, you know, it's not like, it's like police in general, right? It's not like a propaganda piece for a particular corner of society. Um, I'm thinking, I don't know if this one was adapted, but I would be surprised if this wasn't a more sort of organic creation than the, you know, Rocket Force show, um, which, uh, yeah. Yeah, it felt yeah. commercial as a, as a viewer, yeah. right? Let's go across the straits. Um, we're talking about uh, The World Between Us, which came out in 2019 from Taiwan. Um, it's available on like Apple TV and Max and Hulu. And it board. is a sort of uh, <laughs> another sort of police procedural slash with more focus on journalism, actually, about a, um, a, a sort of like entangled murder and like the coverage of the um, uh, uh, the coverage of the case. So maybe I can try to summarize it because I don't understand it at all. This one felt both like kind of avant-garde in a way that I, I was like, I found it like kind of disturbing and well-made, but also unrecognizable in terms of what was going on. Because the, the, you know, the core issue is that there's been a school shooting and the, uh, the characters are in various ways related to either investigating it or related to victims or related to the shooter who is about to be executed. And the, our hero is a law is his lawyer who is trying to prevent him from being executed. So, so what? So he can explain why he did it so that it won't happen again. Like, I, I actually didn't understand what the hell was going on. I mean, I, I, I saw the words, at least in subtitles, but like, I, like in the US, like, like the US version of that, no one is like, let's, we have to struggle to keep this obviously guilty monster alive so that like we can ask him a few more questions about why he's such a monster. Like, I just actually, like, it was super weird, interesting show that I think was confusing to me, not because it was Taiwanese, but just because it was confusing. Like, it was a really, a like, a very ambitious, interesting, weird thing the director was doing, or the writers were doing. But I maybe misunderstood it. I don't think you misunderstood. Yeah, I think it's meant to be intentionally ambiguous and kind of make you question why that lawyer in, in question is so invested in his almost abstract idea of the truth. Like, you're... You always think he has some personal motivation in this. You have this portrayal of him with his wife being really happy even after he got like poops thrown on him. And then like, but then there's always this question in your head of like, what, like what's driving this guy to do this, right? He also lives in like a house that's a bit kind of like um, run down for a prominent lawyer to live in. So I'm sure that there's some sort of backstory that they're going to but it, but it, but you know, but it was certainly. I mean, just because I watched those back to back, and again, I don't That's mean we're to make here broad for. statements, but you know, the national cultural product of a that I, of a country I don't know a lot about. But it was so much about the internal dramas of the characters, 
every, you know, the, the questions we, that you're asking are not, how is this journalist fulfilling her social function, but how is she like balancing the death of her child with her work with, you know, like with her, uh, like it was every character was totally interior and like, you didn't really, and like nobody was representing them. It wasn't like, this is a journalist doing journalism. It was each character was like, this is a person who is like being driven by their there own demons, a, basically. Uh, so another show that um, uh, we watched for this, uh, Chung Zhuang, it's called Bride, uh, Pride and Price, which is also about like a death in a newsroom. Um, the In the pilot, the, um, the woman was sort of like valorized for, um, you know, even though like her partner committed suicide that day, like still like making sure the magazine got out on time. And that was something that was actually like, um, portrayed in a positive way of like, this is how we like get through grief and like, like have meaning in life or whatever. And the complete opposite in this Taiwanese show, like the, the, the main character, um, yeah, she's like obsessed with work, but like, you know, you have a seven-year-old daughter who's like, she's neglecting and like the, the marriage is falling apart all because, um, you know, she, as the show is like trying to insinuate, like does not have her priorities straight. Um, and, and that sort of contrast of, um, uh, of sort of mainland versus uh, uh, Taiwan portrayal of like what, uh, of like work-life balance in a, in a newsroom uh, was really interesting to me. It also just reminded me, if you, you know, the classic Agatha Christie novel, and then there were none, which is probably like, I think it's the best-selling crime novel of all time. But one of the weirdest things about it is that one of the character's wife is murdered, the, the butler's wife is murdered very early on. And he still, and he immediately like brings out the breakfast trays because that's his social role. Like, and there's no thought of like, maybe you want to take the day off, buddy. Like, and you know, like it, it is about the sort of extent to, yeah. And you're sort of struck by how much these people's like kind of yeah, social yeah, roles. I don't know, totally maybe it's a better coping mechanism than just that's like being in your feelings society. all the time, right? It's like, I think most of humanity, we've like existed like that. Not like, not like uh, had enough time to yeah. be indulgent about yeah, our feelings. Totally. Like you got to go farm and like feed everyone or whatever. But um, uh, anyways, it's interesting. Part of me think that's no, 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 sorry, yeah. Part of me think that's almost like the one of the messages of this miniseries, rather than say like a more general idea, because uh, like the it, the title is like uh, in Chinese, it's like the distance between us and evil, and it's meant to be a very intensely individualistic exploration of how kind of close regular humans can be to what we see as almost like unimaginably evil. So there's that sense, sense that like it's not really about where individuals are in a general social function, but rather about like what individuals navigate in their own moral world. So I don't know. Part of me is like that. I, that, I feel like that's that because just because of their insistence on that messaging, it diverges from some other kind of narratives about work and life that we see a bit more commonly, and especially I feel like you say. Let's talk a little bit about the Taiwanese news environment, um, which uh, we got a little um, sort of peek into over this show. So, um, you know, Taiwan, not China, um, it has like uh, seven or eight, uh, like 24-7 news channels, all of which kind of like are taking slightly different tacks. But 
um, it is like a very much a sort of like race to the bottom um, when it comes to uh, coverage um, for, for the most part. And I think that um, this uh, this whole story and like the plot line of, of in the pilot of there being, you know, this this bombing, which turned out to be fake news, but they were sort of stressed out that they didn't weren't covering it in time and everyone was yelling and screaming at each other, uh, I think is like very much broadly representative of um, uh, sort of how. Um, I don't know, like how much of a feeding frenzy that the Taiwanese news ecosystem is. Oh yeah, just totally, totally familiar from a competitive, open, free media environment where everybody, I mean, there's somebody, your com- main rival is running with a story that you don't have confirmed. Like that is a very stressful situation. Everybody's screaming at each other. The editor's ultimately making kind of a gut call on do they think it's true and fudging the process, which is exactly what happens in the show. Um, the or the executive producer is and then the and then there and then there's a meeting with the kind of like suave charming head of ad sales and the ceo of the company and the ad salesman and this is like very niche for me but very classic is both freaking out that the ratings are down because you're not doing enough sensationalism and giving you a lecture on trust and how like it's great and, and that you're doing a great job and it's so important that it's trusted because they're sort of trying out their own sales messages in real time. Like that was so on the nose. And I've worked with many great, you know, ad people, but like they, part of their strength is sort of their ability to tell different stories and see it both ways in the same meeting. And you're like, ah. <laughs> so I just deeply sympathize with the, the executive producer there. Yeah, like whoever wrote that, I mean, they had someone writing that who had been in those situations because it was just totally on the nose of how kind of, you know, just how the sort of conversations at the executive level of these organizations um, go. And totally international, because it's these market forces, essentially, that are, you know, that are not culturally specific. The, uh, uh, so there was also a sort of like a, a husband-wife dynamic, where like the wife was the, you know, and the equivalent of like, uh, I don't know, like I like the like the budget CNN um, and uh, the husband was at the like prestige print magazine and like the ethics, the ethics standards the were like different. Yeah. And that was like something that they were fighting about. Um, you know, there's lots of media relationships in the in, in the U.S. as well that I'm curious, like. Uh... Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, the, you know, in, in, in the thing about because I mean, I just watched these two and again, they were schlocky mainland dramas. And then this obviously very sophisticated production of uh, like the Ch- Taiwanese show. But the reveal of the fact that they're married is done so cleverly. Like it's just the setup and the kind of you're as a reader, like, wait, what? Like the whole, it's as a viewer, I mean, it's so well done, well done. But yeah, right. There's, they have this relationship that, and, you know, where on one hand, there is some formal distinction, you know, they are sort of, they represent different institutions, but also she in particular is so intense that she's not paying a lot of attention to like these, she doesn't have a lot of like, time for ethical scruples like sets are different in taiwan than they are in mainland china um you know the the people the the clothing is different the sort of like the the cop the you know uh the cops the cops have different uniforms the sort of rooms are laid out different the 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 furniture styles it's just like it's it's a different i don't know it's different country like this different language that um uh, uh sort of visual language and like spaces that these characters inhabit even though they're speaking um, they're speaking the same language, and I think it really, like, really ends up coming out. Um, having spent most of my Chinese television watching time watching mainland dramas, um, to to watch a Taiwanese one and be like, oh, it's not just the accent; it's also just like 
like, I don't know, whoever makes furniture in Taiwan is like a different you know, furniture manufacturer. Um, and, and sort of seeing that play out scene by scene by scene was um, uh, was particularly interesting to me. Are there are there mainland cop dramas with that level of honestly, just the, the sophistication of the production and writing in a way felt totally different? There were some in 2019 and 2020 um, that were sort of like, I think, no, I think it was 2019 was sort of, sort of like the banner year. So The Bad Kids, which came out in 2020, um, uh, I think is, was probably sort of like the peak of like criminal drama in uh, in China. It very much had like like HBO level quality. And I actually think it's like a superior show to um, uh, um, to this uh, the, this Taiwanese one that we that we focused on. It was like really artfully um, edited, uh, uh, the sort of like sound design acting all was like, like tr really wonderful. Um, and sort of basically there's this pattern that happens in China where like if a show or a genre gets too popular, then like the censors pay attention and then you can't do it again. Um, so this happened in 2018, uh, this happened in 2017 with like Chinese hip hop, um, uh, reality shows of all things. It happened in 2018 with um, sort of palace dramas. Um, and then it happened in 2020 with uh, the show Shemi de Jiaolua as well as, um, which was also sort of like a, like a Beijing, like a body shows up in a police, in a, in a subway station. And then you've got to kind of figure it out. And it's like going back 30 years and into the present. And it was like a very sophisticated production. And, and this is the real tragedy, I think, of like watching these like schlocky Chinese shows is that it's not a talent deficit at this point. Um, uh, it's just that the the sort of creators are under so much pressure um, and, you know, they do a show and it has to like get re-edited and shot like 12 times before it, before it ends up coming out. And I think you've, you've seen, um, and Irene, I think, haven't you written about this recently of like um, uh, uh, a handful of Chinese producers now starting to give interviews publicly being like, we can't make anything anymore. No, yeah, just generally like you get, people quite openly saying that oh like the the environment is difficult or like um like you have a lot of previews going on and um yeah it's just people are remarkably frank about that being a roadblock and yeah, people talk about it as well like it's interesting sometimes it's like scrolls through wave one we chat and see people um kick out like like the regular public society and critics pick out exactly where they feel like censors did something so yeah it's it it is like you have that famous moment last november or someone like yells the spoke and saying we don't have so the other thing that was interesting no, is jordan, what jo you jordan said about the visual language uh this might be an overgeneralization but i feel like in general Taiwanese shows are remarkably comfortable with darkness and with the almost like a more sentimental portrayal of human life so there's this thing about chinese shows where like even if they're showing a family that's obviously poor you have them like go into a house and it's like clean and sparkly even if it's small and then uh but i've watched a couple, like quite a few times tv shows actually recently and you have this kind of sense of like drab that hangs over uh, certain aspects of daily life um this uh also reminds me of this thing on chinese social media where some like snotty tourists go to taiwan and say oh it looks so 
like it looks like a tiny Chinese county town because it's well, it's like Taiwan built most of this stuff a few decades before China did, and then like it to the eyes of like mainland Chinese people from big cities, it looks oh. I think in Chinese shows, it's either like shiny and great, or it's like desperate poverty that we will come out of by yep. the like, you know, season finale. Um, there's not really like, oh, we're living modern life and like, it's fine. Um, but it's not sort of like a grand socialist dream. Um, that sort of in-between space doesn't really exist. All right. So let's close on the most absurd show um, we watched, uh, Zhao Liangyi or a date with the future in which a journalist, uh, in which a firefighter falls in love with a journalist. Um, ben, what was your take? Okay, so I loved it. You know, I love like sentimental garbage. Um, and yeah, again, very, very familiar in a lot of ways, right? Like, I mean, including like, I mean, just sort of age old, like people are f fall in love and are separated and reunited years later. Um, you know, there's obviously this, I mean, it was most interesting to me sort of professionally was, was the kind of ambivalence about journalism. I mean, there's this sort of, she, the journalist, you know, is, is, you know, films this fire and then the, her production is distorted to make it look like the firefighters were being, um, were slow to the scene when in fact they were being careful to avoid live electrical wires and were in fact, extremely heroic and attractive. Um, and the, and spraying each other, just sidebar here, the, there's a scene where this firefighter just like hoses down all his guys with this like huge hose spraying white foam over all these handsome men. And I think there's not the slightest homoerotic undercurrent to it where, you know, it, like to the, you know, it, it, there's no world on, in in the U.S. or Europe, where that isn't just basically a gay sex scene, um, so that struck me. But um, the uh, no, but but there's this sort of ambivalence about the journalism, and you know, her work is immediately distorted by social media, the presence and of of kind of social media mobs and and so social media getting the wrong idea about these brave government workers is like this constant threat. Um, the journalist is sort of essentially being held accountable for the fact that a section of that they that, that basically there were people in the crowd saying why haven't the firefighters gone in faster? They filmed those people. They explain why the, the 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 broadcast itself is totally fair and honorable and you know supportive of the people's firefighting you know whatever. And but the but some social media users clips that part out, and and the um. And the firefighters are furious at the journalists and the journalists are having meetings about how they did this thing wrong. Somebody took part of their story out of context to suggest that the government was not doing a perfect job. Um, that was that was totally fascinating to me, that whole narrative. Yeah, it's definitely kind of not the way you would tell that. Oh, just, and to, just to finish the thought, it reminded me of the cop show just in that that just wouldn't be a storyline. Like like in a, in a in a U.S. or European show about journalism and and covering a government agency that like that the journalists being held accountable for some distortion of their work and social like there was there's a, there was a sense of like well the journalists have a responsibility that the portrayal of the government is positive and fair and that's like the central conflict in the thing and like that just wasn't 
you know, you just never see. That's just not, I didn't, you know, people don't feel that responsibility. So a while ago, I was scrolling on Weibo and Chinese Twitter um, because one executive at a big media company was sacked by the discipline committee. Uh, and people are talking about it. And that I think reminds me a lot of what you're talking about, Ben, about that um, almost very Chinese um, understanding of media's relationship with society as inherently dutiful and protective of it. So there were a lot of people criticizing this media executive for like supposedly fostering like liberal ideas um, among his papers. And this not it, like the critic, his critics were not come, not necessarily always coming at it from purely ideological point of view, but rather saying that like in putting out some, in like amplifying some flaws with the public sector, with society and whatnot, they were kind of creating unnecessary conflict. They were distracting people from what mattered. They were, um, in general, like working against the grain of society by reporting what they thought was important, I guess. And yeah, there's this, um, like in general, it's just this very different sense of what media is supposed to do. You have this expectation that it be an actively contributive part of a better society. Right. And also also like the journalists are just sort of portrayed, like you just portrayed as idiots. Like the first thing that's the one, so the star reporter does is like, run into the middle of a accident scene and waste everybody's time and some firefighters to drag her back out. And it's just like, they're idiots. They're like the low, they're obviously like the lowest form of society. And in a way that sometimes you'll see kind of TMZ report type reporters portrayed in American dramas. Um, but there's just no sense that this is like a really honorable profession that has its own social logic as opposed to like it's supposed to be serving the broader cause and like constantly screwing it up is sort of how you. Oh, yes. So uh, one, this the biggest Chinese influencer this summer is the man named uh, John Xuefeng, who he started a couple of years ago, I think. I, I, I'm actually not 100% sure about his old lore, but he was a tutor who helped people take the postgraduate exam. And then he started live streaming and got extremely popular on a, a couple of platforms. And this summer, he mostly just did a lot of content about helping kids pick good college majors um, that are employable because the job market sucks. And his biggest controversy was saying that, like, journalism majors are terrible. Like, absolutely no one should ever study media because it's um, just, like, there. there is no future in it. And you have... You, you, you don't have an advantage when you take you go for civil service, you don't have great options for postgraduate education. It's just in general sucks. Uh, and then that was really controversial because some people were like, no, journalism is actually really important for society. And other people are like, he's just saying the truth. Like his main thing, what is helping kids from especially like less resourceful backgrounds to pick employable college majors, because that's a big concern in like Chinese education, because you have this thing where kids like grind 12 years to take the Gokou. And then once they have the score, they have no idea what careers are available, except for like getting to the best school. And then like, what do you do with that? And then your parents, especially if they're blue collar or like they literally did not go through an era of the economy where you had to pick a job, like they have no idea how to help you with that. And so you have this thing where like kids who are from those kind of backgrounds end up picking majors that they were, they were regret because they 
realize there are no directly applicable career fields. Yeah. So and he was like, John Hipple's point was that like people who don't have resources shouldn't do media or journalism. I mean, that it's funny because there's an exactly parallel conversation here about, you know, the, the debt people run up to get into journalism where there are no jobs. I mean, it's a pure economic matter. There's a big backlash to Columbia Journalism School in particular and American, you know, the higher journalism education, you know, the sense of like, what are you, you know, there's just, you're not going to pay back your loans this way. Um, I don't think anybody should major in, I also don't think anybody should major in journalism and totally agree with your friend and hope he can translate his work into English so that it can be more widely distributed. But the, the sort of the strain, which was interesting. I mean, look at Jordan. He could have majored in journalism. What a waste of time that would have been. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I never even thought about it. It seemed really stupid from the get go. Right. The, the, the interesting thing though, is in the West, no one is like, like we need America. Well, there's a little bit of it, right? It's like a, it's like a small whisper of like, like, yeah, like, like, uh, state, state and local reporters are like good for society and like ProPublica is doing God's work or, or what have you, but that's not applicable to semaphore or uh, the New York times really. Um, well, I mean, I have, yeah, I mean, I think there's like a, I mean, the sort of logic of the fourth estate, right. And like that part of a well-functioning democracy is a demented and ravenous mob of journalists is not like. It's complicated. It's not that it's not that each of these journalists should feel a social responsibility. It's much more sort of invisible hand free market, like it's a creative destruction, like that at some level, having all these sociopaths out there lighting stuff on fire keeps everybody honest. Um, you know, would, I mean, and, and I actually find the the sort of and, and that, that's an exaggeration. That's obviously not actually how I think about myself and my team. And, and, and most journalists are pretty responsible. But there is a set, I think, a deep belief that in a free society, you ought to know the truth, the actual unvarnished and often disruptive truth about what powerful people are doing, even if that makes them really unhappy, even if that bleeds into stuff that about their personal lives on the covers of tabloids, that's pretty loathsome and makes you feel bad to see that, that, that for the government to come in and crack down on it would be the beginning of a slippery slope. And so there is this like, yeah, it's very post school. It's very post you know, right? I mean, you know, you read stories about James Reston, like, you know, walking Marilyn Monroe into the white house, um, in the JFK administration. And, and I think the norms were very different in America, um, before the, before the 1970s with this. Sort of yeah. Thing. And they've got, yeah. And I mean, that was because he was the pet, you know, the, the, for the press was more diverse. I think we're headed back into a moment when there will be influencers who walk whoever Donald Trump is dating in his second term into the White House and do not see their roles exposing that. Um, and we're headed, probably headed back to a moment when the journals are more fragmented. But I guess I just mean that, like, that there's a, I think, in free societies, an idea that it's just going to be adversarial to power. And that comes with all sorts of messiness. Um, and that power will constantly be trying to destroy it as Elon Musk is just, to and that that's like a totally natural dynamic. And there's just no world where the white house is going to end up being friendly with the white house press corps. And there's something wrong yeah. if it is. Um, but also then you sort of don't get the MSNBC crowd saying, thank you for what you do all the time. Cause sometimes what you do is really like writing about Hunter Biden and they would prefer you not. Um, 
and and and, and, you, and journalists don't think that much about the consequences of their actions and sort of aren't supposed to in a way that can be a little yeah. disturbing. I mean, it's not like the, it's not like you can't, I mean, I think it's actually probably easier to explain the Chinese perspective of, well, it's a constructive part of society to your average person than the American perspective of like, no, writing about Elon Musk's uh, like, you know, weird personal life is actually a really important social function. Yeah, I think that's on the nose here is that like Chinese expectations for journalism is very, like by, by system, by, by design, it's not meant to be adversarial to power and by so socially that is not, that is almost discouraged. People see disruptive journalism as suspect. Yeah, it's like, it's the party's job to find the corruption, not journalists and you know this was different right in like 2008 2009 2010 and i think and i think there was more openness on from different leaders uh uh in recent chinese history to having the press serve as like some kind of cleansing function um but she has been i think late who and then she in particular have been very clear that um you know and they have like journalism days like journalism appreciation days where like every year she gives a speech saying like basically this um which is that you know you serve an important social function and you need to like make sure there's like positive energy in society and not just focus on um focus on bad things yeah but like watching these two schlocky shows that we discussed one about a police department and one about um a, you know the sort of fire rescue department like there is no role for journalism because these guys are so great and they're just doing such a great job and they're so incorruptible and they're so loyal and they're so totally focused on serving the people of China that like, why would, would journalists appear, they immediately get in the way because all they should be doing is documenting what a fabulous job these government workers are doing. And like, I mean, that's, it just seems like that's obviously the, like, you know, when you're working from that assumption, it does immediately follow that the journalists should get out of the way. I think in, in Chinese TV, I think the, the, the way it works nowadays is you can show government not being excellent as long as it's like before 2010. Um, but like once you start to get into the present, you, you're very constrained in how you can portray public officials. So sometimes shows, you know, they have like they have like two timelines or like they go back and forth and that's how they try to like make stuff contemporary, but still have some um, some like nuance in it. Um, but it is a real creative constraint. Uh, the other part of it is this is like a minor thing, but you can't you always can't make them seem too perfect either. Um, there's increasingly, I think, a more critical audience expectation that you'd be more realistic about the characters if they're in the public service because, I mean, like, it's just real, right? Like, most Chinese people know folks who work in the public sector if they don't do it themselves. They know it's not perfect. They know it's full of humans doing various things um and yeah you have this very interesting tension where they're trying to make that reflect real life whilst also stepping on that line of you have you can do human things without doing that Okay.
深爱着你，我就是爱的彻底。你要我该怎么忘记？也面对你，我毫无抵抗力。Yeah yeah， 爱着你像一个傻瓜，每天幻想着可以和你来二聊天话讲，看着你迷人的嘴巴，那迷人的黑发。Oh baby， you're not so good for me。Baby girl, I can be your, I can be your only. 这么的深爱着。